0: Episode 23 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 5.4, Era of Warfare. I begin this episode with a quote from Edward Gibbons, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1, page 347, quote, The power of the sword is more sensibly felt in an extensive monarchy than in a small community. It has been calculated by the ablest politicians that no state, without being soon exhausted, can maintain above the hundredth part of its members in arms and idleness. But although this relative proportion may be uniform, the influence of the army over the rest of the society will vary according to the degree of its positive strength. The advantages of military science and discipline cannot be exerted unless a proper number of soldiers are united into one body and actuated by one soul." This quote from Edward Gibbon serves as a wonderful introduction to what we will talk about today with respect to how the military, its organization, and the commanders who provided the actuation of which Gibbon speaks. Were organized and assigned. The leadership of Moroni and his son Moroniha represent a period of about 47 years from the tremendous battle of the wilderness to the second battle of Gid. This is the most intensely described period of conflict in the Book of Mormon, and the events described define a period unique in Nephite military history. The Nephites changed their concept of battle from the standard fighting between armies in the wilderness or in the plains and fields adjacent to cities to battles based on larger strategy and control of key positions and cities. Moroni, specifically, changed the concept to controlling cities. This was probably a result of what he learned through understanding the Xenophyte battles and the work of the Jaredites, as well as the tremendous losses suffered by the Nephites in battle and through dissensions. In addition to the change in tactical and operational strategy, Moroni also organizes the Nephites in a way different from the past. There has already been discussion on his preparations and his fortifications and armor, These changes certainly played a key part in supporting what will be discussed here, but those changes dealt with technical and tactical aspects of battle. This episode focuses more on the bureaucratic changes and organization of the Nephite state in times of war, specifically the Amalickiahite war. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Topic 1. Semi-Professional Commanders Throughout the Amalickiahite War, there are consistencies in leadership. The generals all seemed to serve throughout the war and maintained their position regardless of season. It is as if these generals through civilian position, experience, or tribal position, possessed the permanent or semi-permanent position as military commanders. These consistencies seem to be linked to geography or to theaters of war – Bountiful in the Northeast, the East, and Southwest. Specifically, Teancum always seemed to fight in and around Bountiful. We do not know much about Teancum, but clearly from the flow of the narrative he was responsible for Bountiful and operated exclusively out of this critical Nephite city. It is uncertain whether Teancum was simply a military leader or whether he was a magistrate as well, possibly the chief judge of Bountiful. That would make sense as he seemed to have complete control of all efforts in the city and its land. If he was not the chief magistrate of the city, then this meant that the Nephite role of chief captain and the powers extended to him had a parallel at the city level as well, because Teancum exercised similar power and control within Bountiful that Moroni exercised for the entire management of the Nephite wars. Lehi operated out of the city of Noah. He was charged with defending that city in 73 BC, or the nineteenth year of the reign of the judges. He had accompanied his father Zoram when they raised an army to regain the captives taken from Noah after the destruction of Ammonihah in 81 BC, or the eleventh year of the reign of the judges. Lehi presents the biggest challenge to this theory as the current conceptualization of Nephite geography has Noah on the west of the land of Zarahemla. Yet Lehi was involved in multiple battles in the east, as well as being the commander of the east when Moroni left to manage affairs in the west. This may be a result of faulty geographical understanding on my part. Another reason for Lehi being in the east is that a city of Lehi was established there. As most of the cities established in this period are named after political or military leaders, Nephiha. Moroni, Morianton, etc., it is probable that this city, Lehi, was named for this general, Lehi. This may be a city that was populated with members of Lehi's family or tribe, and as such, he could have had dual loyalty to both the cities of Noah and Lehi. It is also possible that Lehi, through his service to his father and his efforts at the Battle of Manti, may have had responsibility for supporting Moroni throughout the Nephite lands as something of a deputy chief captain. Antipas was clearly stationed in the south and southwest and had responsibility for the management of the war in that area. He was replaced by Helaman after his death. Mormon does not mention the home cities or other locations for most of the key people in the Book of Mormon, and therefore it is uncertain, for example, where Moroni was from, though he returned to Zarahemla after the end of the war, and he had great familiarity with Zarahemla and probably lived close to it, given his significant position. Topic 2. Army of 2,000 and 6,000 The armies of the Nephites, Seemed to consist of two elements field armies and garrison forces. In the discussion on fortifications, it was indicated that the Nephites placed forces in each of the cities, and the less fortified received the larger forces. It seems to be that these forces represented the first line of defense and were semi-permanently placed with possible rotations to allow for harvest season and the ability of the state to support such a significant sized force. The field armies may have been drawn from the garrison forces, though this did not seem to be consistently true. They were probably independent of the garrisons, which would have given them the greatest level of freedom. For some specificity, field armies were commanded by Tiancum, Lehi, Antipas, and Moroni. Note that each of these armies often ventured far from a specific city of origin and were used to accomplish specific tactical tasks. Often they were involved in the taking or retaking of cities as part of the overall campaign plan. There is only one instance in this period where the size of a Nephite army was given with precision – the story of Helaman and his 2,000. The army that Helaman went to support with his 2,000 following additional reinforcement had 10,000. In addition to this, there are several references to reinforcements being sent to the Nephite armies. In every case, the size of the reinforcements were either 2,000 or multiples of 2,000, as we are told in Alma chapter 56, verse 9 and verse 28, chapter 57, verse 6, chapter 58, verse 8, and chapter 62, verses 12 to 13. The consistency of the size leads to the possible interpretation of a Nephite army consisting of 2,000 fighters. Each larger army seemed to be a combination of smaller ones. This is illustrated most effectively through the record of Helaman as recorded in the Book of Alma, chapters 56 through 58. At the beginning, he was only one commander of several. It seems that even Antipas was probably a commander of 2,000 as well as the overall commander of all armies in that area. This leads me to suppose that the average size of each theater army or field army was about 6,000, with localized increases based on influxes of reinforcements. Each area seemed to consist of specific cities, further enhancing the link between cities and support. The standard round numbers led to the probability of an annual levy from each area of 1,000 or 2,000. The size of the Nephite forces at the beginning and significant reinforcements throughout led to the existence of a standing army, or these field armies of which I'm speaking, augmented by annual levies of soldiers from specific geographic areas. Topic 3. Institutionalizing Moroni's Military Reforms. The discussions of episode 22 emphasizing the use of armor, fortifications, garrisons, and clearing of areas inhabited by the Lamanites were not events that occurred in a short time. This was something that can be imagined as being done initially as a test, and then as the people saw the success, it was probably implemented throughout the land. It is always easy to accept, in retrospect, tremendous societal sacrifice in time of war, But it is important to appreciate that most of Moroni's reforms happened in times of peace and prosperity. He asked the Nephites to garrison thousands of their people far from home and to invest hundreds of thousands of man hours in construction of fortifications and the creation of entirely new industries for the manufacture of armor. These are areas that a modern society with all of its flexibility and information exchange typically fails to do. It would not be fair to simply imply that the Nephites were a better society. They certainly had some of the same dynamics of any other culture in terms of reticence to waste effort on non-economically productive activities. Security is one of the least productive in terms of benefiting the economy especially when viewed from the purely defensive and ethical style used by the Nephites in their periods of general righteousness. I want to refer you back to the opening quote by Edward Gibbon when he talks about soldiers who are being idle. Think, most soldiers are only active in providing security in fighting. Most of what they do is not fighting when we think about it over the span of one year, for example. The efforts of Moroni certainly took years. The changes to the entire society were significant, as will be discussed in a much later episode, as the principles of fixed security supported by obstacles and mobile field armies becomes calcified into the idea of fixed defense only. These points should cause a listener to appreciate why members of the society were reticent to participate and why they needed to see the efficacy of the efforts before going all in, as expressed in Alma chapter 50 verse 12. Moroni demanded much from his fellow citizens, and it took time for them to be completely supportive, if they ever were. Topic 4. Transfer of Techniques and Ideas to Lamanites The army of Moroni had armor at the battles of Jershon and Mandai in 74 BC in the Zoramite war. By the beginning of the Amalekite war, at the second battles of Ammonihah and Noah, near the end of the 19th year of the reign of the Judges, the Lamanites now have shields, armor, and padded clothing. Military techniques and technology were being transferred. A significant cause of this was the dissensions of the Amalekites to the Lamanites. Certainly, some of these men who had been low-level magistrates and teachers of the Nephites had fought in the armies of Moroni in the Zoramite war and understood the armor used by the Nephites. It is likely that some of these men took their armor with them as they fled since they were marching in a military manner and were fighting a battle when the leaders fled to the Lamanites. The tactics used by both sides were similar as both in the eastern and western theaters of war there are stories of armies trying to lure the other side out of fortified positions and then to ambush them on the march. The Nephites used wine to facilitate an attack or their stratagem for a particular city and the Lamanites tried to do the same. In this period there was little difference between the two groups. I am supposing that these similarities came through dissensions, intrigues, and prolonged military contact. Most armies learn from their opponents, and the longer two armies face each other, the more they understand the tactics of the other. War is a learning business. I often refer to it when talking to my students as Darwinian, meaning if one does not adapt, one dies. Therefore, there are lots of adaptations in war. And the longer wars last, the more adaptations we see. We will note, for example, that the Lamanite army begins the Amalekite hide War incompetent in attacking cities. But after years of non-combat, when Amalickiah leads the Lamanite armies up the eastern shore, they will successfully capture six cities in one campaigning season. This is a tremendous example of learning, training, and developing a capability in the middle of a war, but without constant combat. Topic 5 A War for Control of Cities Episode 22 or Part 5.3 discussed the use of fortifications and the changes in tactics that the construction represented. Episode 19, or part 4.4, explained the tremendous battle of the wilderness and the impact of the enormous losses on the tactics used by the Nephites and Lamanites. The Zoramite war that occurred from 75 to 74 BC, or the 17th to 18th years of the reign of the judges, saw the attack toward cities, Jershon and then Manti. The battles in this Zoramite war were fought outside the cities. The Amalickiahite war began with attacks on cities and included the only description of a city assault in the entire Book of Mormon, the city of Noah, as will be discussed in a future episode and as told in Alma chapter 49 verses 13 to 25. Following the failure to take Noah, the Lamanite armies changed geographic focus and tactics. They attacked cities in the east in a period of major Nephite dissensions that occurred both before and during the attacks. These dissensions drew the eastern field armies north in pursuit of Morianton, toward Bountiful, and then back to Zarahemla and away from the region and cities they were designed to protect. In the west, the capturing of cities followed an ancient pattern of using internal intrigues rather than direct assault. As a note, more cities were taken in the ancient world due to intrigue than ever were captured through assault or siege. Once the Lamanites had control of the cities, the Nephite strategy revolved around recapturing these fortified positions. The remainder of the war was a battle for these cities. All of the battles took place with the purpose of capturing the city. This was a crucial change and reflected a change in strategic thinking brought about under Moroni's leadership. These were battles of position to maintain control of specific terrain through the placement and control of cities. This remained true for nearly all the rest of Nephite history, or about 450 years. In Moroni's era, Moroni's thinking and that of his subordinate commanders was entirely focused with how a city could be defended or retaken. Topic 6 – Prisoners What was done with captured prisoners in the ancient world remained consistent throughout the period. The captives were either killed or sold into slavery for monetary gain. The men were usually the ones killed and the women and children the ones sold into slavery, though not always true. Sometimes men were sold into slavery as well. The Lord gives similar guidance to the Israelites as they begin their entrance to Canaan, and I quote from Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 12 to 14, And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword, meaning kill the men, But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, meaning take as slaves or sell as slaves. Close quote. This was common in nearly all of the ancient empires. This was also true for many empires, even if a city capitulated before a siege. The deportation of large segments of population was common for both the Assyrians and Babylonians and was well known throughout the Hebrew Bible and was certainly contained in the brass plates. The Lamanites even practiced a similar pattern as seen in the sack of Ammonihah and the taking of captives from Noah. This was a practice that seemed common even in the Promised Land. Given the general acceptance of this behavior, why then were the Nephites so different? The Nephites did not have slaves as a result of the law of Mosiah 2, as we were told in Alma chapter 27, verse 9, and we previously discussed in an earlier episode, but clearly slavery was a known concept. Limhi, the last Nephite king, said Nephite slavery would be better than being in bondage to the Lamanites in Mosiah chapter 7, verse 15. And Mormon told us that Moroni delighted in delivering his brethren from slavery in Alma chapter 48 verse 11. The Nephites followed the law of Mosiah too, and instead of turning war captives into slaves, they made them prisoners of war and guarded them and established prison camps in both Bountiful, as we are told in Alma 53 verses 1 through 6, and Zarahemla, as expressed in Alma 56, 57, and Chapter 57 verse 11. The Nephite view of treatment of prisoners of war clearly included feeding and caring for them, as this is a point of contention between army leaders expressed in Alma chapter 54 verse 2. Neither side wanted to maintain large groups of prisoners as they presented logistical challenges. The Nephites also used prisoners for a public labor force, burying battlefield dead building the casement walls that protected Bountiful from attack and improving the defensive works of other cities as expressed in Alma chapter 53 verses 1 through 6 and Alma chapter 55 verse 25. The concept of prisoners of war seems to have been reciprocal as the Lamanites maintained prisoners and cared for them as we are told in Alma fifty-four twenty, and Moroni ordered the prisoners to kept to be used as a possible exchange in Alma 52-8. In the West, the Lamanites followed a more traditional pattern of killing all but the chief captains as expressed in Alma 56:12. These were men with ransom potential. This limitation of who was kept as a prisoner was probably connected to the logistical burden of prisoners. A specific example of this burden comes in Alma chapter 57 verses 13 to 16, as we are told about problems with guarding men in the ancient era with handheld weapons. Many of the prisoners were able to escape by running against the guards and throwing themselves on the weapons of the guards. The Nephites also used the Lamanite prisoners as a test for poison in wine and all their liquors, as expressed in Alma 55 verses 31 to 32. In the modern era, this would be a violation of the law of war, but clearly it was not considered to be so among the Nephites. All of the Lamanites following the Battle of Nephiha in 61 BC, or the 31st year of the reign of the Judges, chose to enter into the covenant of non-violence followed by the people of Ammon and were allowed to join themselves with that people as comes from Alma 62, verses 16-17 to 17, and 25-29. to 29. This represented another example of the importance of covenants and oaths among both the Lamanites and Nephites. These were men who were killing each other only a few hours earlier, and Moroni allowed them to freely go and join with other former Lamanites within the Nephite-controlled territory. This is extraordinary in any historical context. Typically, this was a sort of act offered to only the most senior leaders over rebellion in other ancient empires, but in the Book of Mormon we are told that it was allowed for regular fighters to enjoy such benefits with their oath or covenant only. In our next episode, we will discuss the difference in leadership styles of both Moroni and Amalickiah. I invite you to reach out and ask questions. And send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at Gmail.com. All one word War in the Book of Mormon at Gmail.com. Until next time.